Well, good morning, Harrison Bridge. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. Better than first service, not as good as second service. It's all right. Caffeine's wearing off. That's okay. We'll get you to lunch. If you're like me, you'll get another cup of coffee then. Working with students, I need a whole lot of caffeine, a whole lot of coffee, a whole lot of energy drinks. I joked with our team the other day. We should be sponsored as a student team by energy drinks because we keep them in business. Love your students, but man, that's a fast pace in there. Uh, hey, as Pat said, I am the student director. Uh, it's my privilege to serve you and to primarily serve your students. And what a blessing it has been, almost eight months now. But I just want to use this time, I try to do it at every campus. Uh, if you have a student who is not plugged into upstate students or is not plugged into the students here at Harrison Bridge, let me highly encourage you to change that today. And how you can change that is you can find me afterwards and I can tell you about ways that you can plug in or you can find Elise Martin. I saw her somewhere around here. Um, you can connect with Elise and let her tell you about all the things specifically happening at Harrison Bridge campus. Uh, if you're a part of Harrison Bridge and you're a student and you're not connected with what's happening over in those couple of rooms down the hall, man, you're missing out. You're missing out on, on quite the blessing. Our leaders are phenomenal down there. And I can't say enough about them. Uh, I truly believe that this church is all about seeing the gospel reach the upstate of South Carolina. And I'm a little biased because I think primarily it will happen by the students. And so students, this is your formal invitation. Hey, come on in. See what's happening here uh, in our upstate students. And so we're continuing with our series. It's called Back to the Basics. Uh, if you're like me, I always need to be reminded of the basics. Because I always faced it, this temptation, whether it's with spiritual things or not. I tend to take simple truths and make them overly complex, right? I tend to take something that should take 30 seconds to say, and I somehow, as a good Baptist preacher, stretched out about five minutes, right? I was literally talking to Melody last night, and I know it was late, but as I was talking, I just see her eyes nodding off, and I'm like, oh, man, like... I probably could have shortened this a little bit, but she is very gracious and a loving wife, and she listens to her husband ramble on even when she shouldn't. Uh, but if you're like me, we struggle with taking basic, profound truths and making them far more complex than they need to be. And especially with this series, uh, the way it's designed is to call us back to those profound truths. And this series is geared off of, or it's built off of, the Apostles' Creed. If you're unfamiliar with that, I encourage you, when you get home today, Google it, read through it. We'll actually sing uh, a good portion of it after the sermon in just a few minutes together. But the Apostles' Creed is a document that was put together some couple of thousand years ago uh, by a group of men, group of followers of Jesus, that said, all these things are happening in our world. They were living in a society a lot like we live in today. They were living in a society that put forth a bunch of false beliefs, and especially in terms of who Jesus was and what that meant. And so these guys got together and they said, this is who we are based off of what God's word says. Now, the Apostles' Creed is not scripture, it is not divinely inspired, but it's a group of men saying, hey, based off of God's inspired word, here are some summary statements. And so I would say this is a highly important series for us because it calls us back to the basics. And if you're like me, as I said, we need reminders. We need reminders of that on a daily basis. One such reminder in my life is my little girl, Anna Grace. As a three-year-old little girl, she constantly puts daddy to the test with keeping things simple. You know, one of the ways we, we do this is I get to take her to school most mornings, and we, our, our morning routine looks something like this. She wakes up, and she says, Daddy, I want cereal or a waffle. 
And I said, okay, we'll get cereal waffle. Daddy, I want cocoa melon. So I got to watch some cocoa melon. If you are not exposed to cocoa melon, don't go down that road, all right? Just do yourself a favor, skip the Netflix. Don't even click on it. The songs will be stuck in your head for days. I've, I've seen cocoa melon in the office to myself, all right? And so we watch a little cocoa melon. And then after that, we get in the car and we're heading to school. And as we're heading to school, I started using the Parent Q app that's hooked in with our kids' ministry. If you've got a kid, you should definitely use it. And we're working on memorizing verses, right? Our verse of this month is Psalm 139, 14. I am fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, right? Substantial, basic verse, right? Playing off of what we're talking about this morning. Uh, she says it like this, I am wonderful. I'm like, yes, you are, <laughs> but you're wonderfully made in the image of God. But one of the things she, she does is that after that, we'll start talking about the past couple of weeks, say, hey, oh, well, what did God make? This and that and that. And the other week she asked me, she said, Daddy, where is God? And, and I was like, oh, okay, this got real, real quick here. Daddy's coffee hadn't kicked in. I'm not ready for this question. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to know these answers. I'm used to communicating that answer to an adult or to a teenager, but to a three-year-old that has a very limited vocabulary who doesn't understand what invisible means and all these theological terms, let's just be quite honest with you. I kicked that can down the road. I said, well, we'll talk about that when you get older. You know, it's, uh, it's bad when the pastor can't explain that to his kid here. But hey, I'm still learning. Uh, but here's the thing. We tend to take simple truths and build them up and lose sight of the importance of those simple truths here. And you say, well, Corey, I'm a Christian. Why do I need to be reminded? Well, we've given you some reasons, but even this truth we're going to talk about today, you're going to ask this question probably. I already know this is true. Why do I need it? And here's the truth. Let me go ahead and give it to you, and we'll give you another reason why. What we're focusing in on, the part of the Apostles' Creed we're focusing in on today, deals with the death of Jesus. Next week, they'll deal with the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that these two weeks in this series are the most important weeks in all of the series, and here's why. If we miss the cross, we miss Jesus. You can get everything else right in this series. We're going to talk about community in a couple of weeks. You can get that right. You can get uh, being in the Word right, and you can get uh, praying regularly right, and you can get other important things of the faith right. But if we miss the cross, we might as well pack it up and go home. We're just wasting each other's time here. The cross is at the bedrock of our faith. Our Savior's death on that cross defines who we are as a people collectively as the church and so it's uber important for us here today to say and to know that even though this is a basic truth it is one that bears mentioning and repeating daily even if i already know jesus and here's another quick reason why that bears repeating Kerry Newhove, he's an author, a speaker, a Christian-based one. He speaks into a lot of things happening in the culture. He tweeted this out this week, and I, I was just convicted by it. He said, the overwhelming identification of Generation Z and Alpha as having no religious affiliation will transform America into a thoroughly post-Christian nation. That is, the generations that are here, Generation Z, like my students now, middle schoolers and high schoolers, and Generation Alpha, that includes my daughter's age range, in short order, we will be a post-Christian nation. Now, here's the thing. I would already say we already are. It's not news flash to anybody. Now, the knee-jerk reaction with that is to say, oh, well, America's just going downhill, and let's just pack it in. Please don't be that person, all right? Please don't be that person on social media, especially. That's just annoying. Nobody likes that person. If that's you, I'm sorry. Uh, but here's the thing. 
that should give us reason for optimism because in a culture in a in generations that are coming that don't know the truth we can bring simple substantial truths and say here's who jesus is here's why he died and here's why it matters to you and in a culture that has lost its way those simple substantial truths that we'll see it change lives and we already are um, i can tell you in our student ministry left and right we're just simply telling them the gospel and the lord is doing amazing things through those simple truths there and so Here's what we're focusing in on, the line of the Apostles' Creed. It tells us this, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. As I said, next week we'll talk about the resurrection and the tomb. We'll get you there. But we need to focus in on the bloody cross of our Savior this morning. Three points to help us illustrate why this is such a basic but yet substantial truth. Number one is this. Jesus' death was literal. It was a literal death. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to Acts 2. We'll pick up in verse 22. As you're turning there, we're going to see Peter speak about the literal death of Jesus. He's going to tell us some other things as well that are important for our time. But in Acts 2, 22 and 23, Peter is preaching his first sermon. Now, it's what we call the day of Pentecost. It's a very important date in Christian history. This is the date when the Holy Spirit, we'll sing about him in just a minute, the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers, the disciples of Jesus, and empowered them to carry out the mission of Jesus. You say, well, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead Trinity. And what that means is we have God the Father, we have God the Son, that is Jesus, and we have God the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus lived an earthly life, died to death, was resurrected and ascended. He's in heaven now. When he told his disciples what was going to happen, he said, I will leave, but the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will come. And so the Holy Spirit empowered the believers then. If you're a Christian now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit now to do the work that God has called you to do. And so this is the backdrop, the first day of Pentecost here, where Peter is preaching, this uneducated, untrained fisherman who has no business preaching. And to add to that, he's preaching to thousands of people. This is not just, I got 10 people in the room, it's my first time speaking. No, there are thousands within this setting here in Jerusalem. How do we know that? There will be thousands saved by the simple gospel truth in just short order. And so here's Peter a guy, at last glance, we saw him right before Jesus was crucified, denying Jesus, but we know Jesus restored him. And now this Peter is empowered by God to stand up and to preach a sermon. And let's hear a little snippet of that, Acts 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this is Je this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, I, I don't know how many of you have to do public speaking. It's kind of part of the gig for me. But in public speaking 101, this is a no-no. You don't look at a bunch of strangers you've never talked to and said it's your fault that all this happened, right? Talk about how to lose a crowd in a matter of seconds. But here's Peter just being very blunt, right? And he's not wrong. The reason for the death of Jesus, that's on us as well. 
And we're going to find out why in just a minute. But what we need to see is that Peter is sitting here in the first point, and he's showing us that his death was literal, that Jesus' death was literal. Why is it important for us to understand this? Because you're saying, oh, we're in a church today in the South. It's just a foregone conclusion that, yes, Jesus really lived and died. But look around you in the culture today and even look in your own life at temptations in your life uh, from workplace to family to friends to the neighborhood. And though you may say, even as a believer, I know Jesus lived and died. You are still tempted to back off of that. I'm tempted to back off of that. And here's why we are threatened oftentimes of standing on such exclusive claims that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to have forgiveness of your sins. Jesus really died on the cross for you and me, enemies of God. Those exclusive claims in a culture that does not like exclusive claims, you are pressured to back off of them. And especially if you're a student in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The older ones may not, but we know in our middle school and high school years to back off of these, that's a temptation very well front and center in our lives here today. So it's necessary for us to cover Jesus' death as being literal. So how do we know that he was a literal man? Number one, Peter said so. Listen to what he says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Day of Pentecost happened not long after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, maybe a couple months, something like that. So the people that were standing in Jerusalem stood a very good chance of standing on that day when they could have walked by Golgotha's hill and saw Jesus suffocating on the cross. So these people knew who Jesus was. Even if they never saw him in the flesh, they had heard about his ministry. They would have said, if you walked up in the first century Jerusalem context and said, is this a real man? They would have said, of course he's a real man. Everybody's heard about him. And so Peter knows that they know that Jesus was really real and he really died. Before our world today, we're filled a lot of times with skeptics, and that's okay if you are. We may say something, though, if we're that person, and we may say, well, but that's just Peter. Of course he's biased. Well, I would point you to the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Independently, they each write about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You say, okay, that's still in the Bible, Corey. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, about five, over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus there. Well, that's still in the Bible. Well, let's take it outside of the Bible and see that there are extra biblical sources and people and documents that state that this Jesus really lived and really died. In fact, the Roman leader Tacitus writes about this Jesus. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't have a dog in the fight. Josephus, one of the most celebrated Jewish historians that we have of the first century, was not a follower of Jesus, writes about the validity of this Jesus living and dying. The Babylonian Talmud 43b, yes, I'm a geek, and I really said that phrase right there. That is a Jewish document that has no interest in Jesus being the Messiah, and they validate that Jesus was really a man who lived and died. In fact, A.T. Robinson, a scholar, says it this way, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the single most attestable fact that we have in the Bible. If you can disprove the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you do away with Christianity. And if that's you in here today that would like to try it, please go ahead. And I don't mean that in a, a sarcastic way. Because people have been trying to do that for 2,000 years and it just hadn't happened. And I don't believe it will happen. But 
feel free to try because here's the thing. This was really a man who really died, who really rose from the grave because he's really the savior of the world. That death was literal. It wasn't just, oh, he acted like he died on the cross and some angels came down and stole him away at the last minute or they resuscitated him later or somehow he survived. No, what we know is that it's a historical fact that he took his last breath on that, on that cross. Most scholars say he would have suffocated on that cross. The way they position you, the way your muscles are positioned, you have to lift yourself up to take a breath every single second. Not even factoring in the torture he's just undergone, the ripping of the flesh on his back, the carrying of the cross, the beatings that he had already undergone. But now here's this man having to literally raise himself up to get a single breath. And what we know, if any of you were at the men's conference and you saw those two men on stage yesterday doing the bench press competition, sooner or later, those muscles fatigue, right? Sooner or later, they're going to give out. And the same way with Jesus on the cross, we find him suffocating because his lungs would have filled with fluid because he couldn't lift himself up. His death was literal. Even to the pagans, those who did not believe in Jesus, they would agree with this statement. Now, if you're like me, though, you say, okay, you can validate that he really lived and he really died, but why, right? Living with a toddler in my house, that is a question that is asked on a daily basis. I say, Anna Grace, put your shoes on. Why? Because you need to put your shoes on, right? Anna Grace, turn off Coco Melon. Why? Because I'm sick of listening to Coco Melon, right? And why? That's a question I'm answering on a daily basis. And I ask the same with Jesus on the cross. Why did it have to be? Maybe you're asking that same question here today. Why? Why is it important that Jesus goes to the cross? Because again, the temptation for some of us in here is that we tend to think, oh, poor Jesus. He just ended up at the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, he just stumbled into the cross on that fateful day in Jerusalem. Oh, he didn't really mean to be there, but he made something out of it. No, understand this. His literal death was planned from the get-go. Even before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan. We hear Peter say that it's definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Though we played a role in putting him there with our sin, God knew before the beginning of the world that this was where it was going to go. On that virgin birth of what we'll get ready to set, uh, celebrate at Christmas in just a, a few months, and, and it gives you all the warm fuzzies and all of that, understand this, it was known even then on that starry Bethlehem night that he was going to a bloody cross. The question is why? 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 Now here's why. Second point, his death was sacrificial. His death was sacrificial. We needed a sacrifice. Why do we need a sacrifice? Because our sin demanded it. And what is sin? Anything that is against God. Anything I think, anything I say, anything I do. Anything that goes against who God is or what he stated in his word. I can sin right now in my mind and think of thoughts that are not honoring to God. I can say words that are not honoring to God. I can do acts that are not honoring to God. And here's the thing. We all do them. You say, really, Corey? Yes, really. Romans 3.23 says this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So right there, what Paul, one of the New Testament writers, is saying to you and saying to me is this. I have a sin problem. Not just me, but you. All of us. 
all seven and a half billion people that live on this earth right now, living and breathing, every single human being outside of Jesus in human history, we all have a sin problem. I have a sin problem as a pastor. You have a sin problem as hopefully a church member or a visitor. My little three-year-old girl has a sin problem. I think she's a sinner sometimes when she pitches fits. I don't tell her that. I think it. I'm like, I don't have to teach you how to sin. You're already sinning right now. But then afterwards, she hugs you and it breaks your heart. And you're like, no, you can't be redeemed. But here's the thing. We're all sinners. We struggle with that, right? We fall short of the glory of God. There is a standard that God has set. And what Paul makes clear in the New Testament is this. We don't hit that standard. We can't hit that standard. It leads us to the next verse here, Romans 6, 23. Because we don't hit that standard, there's a price to pay. For the wages of sin is death. My sin has earned me physical death and eternal separation from a righteous, perfect, holy, pure God. Because my sin renders me imperfect, unholy, and impure. Unable to approach a holy and a righteous God. What the scripture points out to us, what scripture in general points out to us is this, that because of my sin, I cannot even go in the presence of the perfect God of this universe. So I have some issues here as a sinner. I know that the wages, the payment, the paycheck, if you will, of my sin is death. Makes us ask the question, well, can anything be done? Hebrews tells us this in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, the author writes, He says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So what the Bible makes clear is that unless blood is shed, we have no hope in our sins. And you can trace this all the way back to the beginning pages of the Old Testament. Adam and Eve, first two human beings ever created. Perfect world, they choose to play God rather than trust God. And what ends up happening is sin is introduced into the world. And there are some very real ramifications for that. They are kicked out of the garden. Creation is thrown into chaos. But before they're kicked out of the garden, God makes a covering for them. Why? Their sin had brought shame to them. They realized that they were naked and they were shamed. And as they were ashamed, God still made a provision for them for their sin to be covered. What we're told is that he provides uh, animal skins for them. How do you get them? Well, there was, had to be a sacrifice there. Fast forward later on, the series we just covered, if you weren't a part of it, go, go back and listen to us, a phenomenal series, talking about the book of Exodus, God's people sitting in slavery, and to dislodge them. We talked uh, at length about the ten plagues, and that last plague, the death of the firstborn. But to escape that plague, an animal had to be slaughtered so that you could spread the blood over the doorway so the death angel passes over your household and you are spared shedding of blood there throughout the rest of the old testament pages there were time fails us to cover all of it we see again and again temporary animal sacrifices covering temporarily my sin so i can even begin to approach god and that continues to where we find ourselves today at the death of jesus because the next verse in hebrews tells us this about jesus But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Listen to that verse. Christ doesn't have to come back and offer himself every single time that you and I sin. Right? It's like, oh, Corey sinned again. Let me go down to earth and do this thing again. 
right? Even in the Old Testament, we see year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, animal slaughtered after animal slaughtered, more blood, more blood, more blood. What we find at the cross, though, is that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that offers the remission, the forgiveness of sins that our hearts long for. Therefore, we can say, as Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and let me just, normally this is towards the end of, of the sermon, but let me just say this. If you are not a follower of Jesus in here today, your biggest enemy, your biggest obstacle, your biggest hurdle, your biggest mountain is not what you're going to eat for lunch. It's not how your job's going to go tomorrow, or if you can make a house payment, or the sickness of a loved one, or maybe even a sickness for you. Your biggest enemy is that you are stuck in your sins, and there is no way for you to pay that debt on your own. And if you're honest with yourself, as, as we tend as a society to put masks on, even Christians, Right? We tend to dress it up, put a mask on, and act like we got it together. But if we're honest, we take that mask off, we're all just a bunch of messed up, broken sinners. If we're honest with ourselves today, if I'm not a Christian, then I know hearing the words of God that he has provided a way out of my hopeless state, that is the best news you could hear this morning. And it's not to beat you into submission, but simply to call you to the fact that God has loved you so much He's seen you as an enemy of God, as a sinner, as not deserving of any of his love and grace, and yet he has still called you into his family. My invitation would simply be, God's invitation is this, that you would turn from your sin and you would turn to Jesus today. We'll tell you more how to do that in just a moment. Jesus' death was sacrificial. Why? A sacrifice had to be made for us to have any hope, any chance of knowing God and being freed and forgiven of our sin. Leads us to the third point here. Jesus' death was personal. His death was personal. Right? It was literal. We've established that. Even the non-Christians say this man lived and died. We've established the why. Why did he die? Because of my sins, because of your sins. And now we hear more of how we are to respond in light of this, at the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he lands the plane, telling them about this Jesus that is being crucified, that has been raised again. And listen to how they respond. Verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what we're told is thousands come to know Jesus that day. Here, a bunch of people seemingly at random in Jerusalem sees this untrained, uneducated fisherman stand up for the first time in his life, and he preaches Jesus. And he tells them about the Jesus who literally lived, literally died, and literally rose again. And they're so cut to their heart with this. They say, how, how in the world? We know we got to do something with this. How are we supposed to respond? Because again, uh, the lie of our culture, maybe even some of the lies in the church in general is this, is that we can just look at the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb and we can say, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus paid it all, but I don't really have to interact with that. 
But what the Bible paints a picture of here is that there has to be a personal interaction on my part and your part for me to lay hold of that forgiveness of sins which Jesus offers. Your parents' faith will not do it. Mommy's and daddy's faith will not save you, children and students. Your, however great your granddaddy or grandmama was or is, they will not save you. No matter how much salt of the earth they may be, and you're going to love mama's cooking or grandma's cooking at the lunch today, and you're all going to talk about the great songs you sang at church and this and that, it still will not save you. You have to make a personal choice today. You have to make a choice of what you do with the literal death of Jesus. How do you respond to it? Peter gives it here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the playbook. Here's the move. Repent and be baptized. Now, let's be clear. Baptism doesn't save. Baptism is an outward expression of what Jesus has already done in my heart. Right? Jesus saves first, and then the next step is baptism. By the way, if that's your next step, we have baptism coming up September 11th. Love for you to be a part of that, if that's your next move. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, your next move is this. That I would turn from my sins, I would turn to Jesus, and I would follow him the rest of my life. What Romans 10, 9 tells me is that if I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and I confess that he is my Savior, that God has raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. You see, God doesn't make it hard. He doesn't make all these hoops for you to jump through. Even right now, sitting in your seat, you can realize that I am a sinner. I have no hope of getting out of my sin and sin debt. Therefore, the only move I have is to respond to Jesus by faith this morning. And the Bible says you will be saved. Faith is believing in that which we have not seen. The author of Hebrews puts it. So friends that are not followers of Jesus in here, that's the call for you today. But what about us in here who do know Jesus? We say, okay, Corey, I know all that. I'm saved. But here's the temptation for you and me. We tend to look at the cross of Jesus and say, yes, I believe that Jesus literally lived. I believe that his death was sacrificial. And I believe that I have made a personal decision to follow Jesus. And amen, praise God for that. But the question is this, have you gotten over it? Has it grown stale in your life? Because the temptation, especially in the world we live in here today, where we have screens galore and our plates are packed busier than ever before in human history, is that we look at something so simple yet so substantial as the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus to free me from my sins, and we say, that's great, I've checked that box, now on to the next thing. And we come into a place where a couple hours on a Sunday morning and we sing some songs, but then we leave it there and we go on about our lives. Understand this, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should never get over that point where Jesus has saved you. You should wake up every morning and be reminded of the fact that God has looked down on my lowly state and somehow, someway, seemed fit to save me from my sins. That is something, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope we never get over. Because I, I think that this world wants to, Satan himself is okay with us acknowledging, cool, Jesus died on the cross. Because he knows in this busy world, we're tempted to not do anything with it. And so the call for us here today is simply this. How do I respond to the Jesus that has saved me? You know, for me, every time I go back to the moment that I was saved, I told the first two services, 
Hemingway First Baptist Church, my third grade years, a little podunk town, middle of nowhere. And I would sit up front and I would draw on a bulletin with my best friend Daniel. We would draw rocket ships every single Sunday. Ignore the pastor the whole time. <laughs> it's so discouraging. But one day I stopped drawing rocket ships and I started listening and I heard about my sin debt and I heard about the mercy of Jesus. And I went to my dad afterwards and I said, Dad, I, I got to know. And my dad led me to the pastor's office and we sat down in short order. I was a follower of Jesus. And even now, some two decades later, it still moves me to go back to that moment, a moment I'm prone to forget so often. It moves me not just to think back fondly, but to now say, how am I living out the grace and love and mercy that Jesus has shown me? You see, when we are people that are not getting over our salvation, but people that are driven by our salvation, we are people that change the world by the Jesus who has come and sacrificed everything for us. So today, how do we respond to the literal Jesus who has died and sacrificed himself for us here today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You're a Jesus that sees us in our wretched state, our sinful state, knowing we have nothing to offer you. Yet, you are willing to step down out of heaven and to step into our broken world, to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we should have died, and to conquer sin and death so that we may have hope. God, I pray if there's one in here who doesn't know you today personally, that today will be the day they know you. Father, for those of us who do know you, maybe it's a calling back to the simple but substantial truth that we should never get over what Jesus has done in our lives, and that it should drive us and propel us all the rest of the days. So Jesus, we ask that you would move during this time. I ask these things in your name. Amen.